uh, series we've titled as Children of God. And we've seen many things, right? Namely, uh, what it means to abide in Christ. What does it mean to, uh, you know, to, to continue to walk in such a way that the rest of the world can recognize and see that we are children of God? And we've really seen two big truths that seem to circulate. I don't know if you've noticed this as you read through 1 John and even some of these sermons. Uh, if they begin to sound a bit redundant, it's because... John is really trying to get you to wrap your mind around uh, what it means to abide in Christ. What does it mean to actually be children of God? But there are two truths uh, that John teaches us explicitly. One is that God is light. And, and therefore, Christians ought to walk in light and not in darkness. And the second is that God is love. And therefore, Christians walk and live and love. And these two things must never be separated from one another. Um, it's striking that, that while many people remember John saying God is love, and he emphasizes, first of all, that God is light, God is holy. And to use other language that the Bible uses, uh, God is real, even jealous love. Uh, he wants all of us. He, he wants uh, to change us all. Uh, and our, as our passage will teach us this morning, uh, so that we would become sons and daughters, delighted, by the delighted in by the Father. We would become more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to John chapter verse 28 we're going to be in the end of 28 or the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 I'm going to read the text for us and then we'll dive in uh, to our message the text reads this way 1 John chapter 2 28 through 310 and now little children abide in him so that when he appears we might have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The, the, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, uh, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. We know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, but the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But this, by this, it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. So, several years ago, I was, I guess, on a lunch break here. um, And I went to Firehouse Subs. And while I was in line at Firehouse Subs, I grabbed my, my chips, waiting to order. There's a man in front of me who boldly proclaims that he was a part, I'm not going to name the church, but boldly proclaims that he was a member of this particular really fundamentalist church here in town. Um, He began to boldly proclaim that he was a Christian and he began to share the gospel with the young man that was um, um, uh, taking everybody's orders at 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 the register. And he began to ask the young man, have you repented of... And he's speaking loudly. He's speaking so that everyone in the room can hear. Have you repented of your sins? I mean, he's speaking just like, like he's standing, like trying to make everybody in, 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 in there hear. Have you repented of your sins? Do you, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? The young man began to talk to him and explain to him, you know, a few things and then Later, he then turned to me, because I'm standing right behind him, sort of just soaking in what's happening in front of me, and everybody's watching. He turns to me, and he says, what about you? Are you a Christian? And, you know, my answer honestly didn't really suffice, and really should not suffice what he was really asking, but, but I said to him, well, actually, I'm, I'm a pastor here in town over at uh, Capshaw. And his remark to me, his his comment back to me was, are you a saved pastor? Now, I knew what he meant by that, asking me, am I a real Christian? Of course, anybody can profess to be a Christian, but are you a Christian? And while his tact uh, may not have, you know, may, was peppered with a bit of pride, okay, This really, honestly, it's an honest question. Um, And that's John's concern, actually, in this letter. I think it should, you know, just because somebody holds a religious degree, just because someone uh, is a pastor or not a pastor. Listen, Judas went to the best seminary in the world for three years. And it made no difference in his life. There's no better seminary that Judas attended than, the, than, 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 than he did under the feet of Jesus Christ himself. So, John's concern in this letter is really answering some of these questions. How do we know that we are Christians? How do we know that we are real Christians? And of course, this was especially urgent for him. Because as we've already seen in this first letter, uh, there had been a church split. Um, 
It wasn't over the color of the carpet, I can assure you. Uh, It wasn't over a nasty business meeting. It wasn't any of those things. But the people who had left were apparently claiming to be the real Christians and despising those, these sheep that were left in John's flock. And so John is concerned, as he says towards the end of the letter, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know that you really are a child of God. So what? So, so that you know that you really belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and so that you really know that your faith is genuine. genuine. Now, what if you were having coffee uh, on a Tuesday morning on your own and someone falls into your conversation with you uh, and, and the church comes up, Capshaw comes up, you tell them you're a member and they say to you, are you a Christian? Uh, and you say, yes, I am a Christian. And it might be the same person that, that I ran into that day at Firehouse. And the person says, are you a real Christian, though? Are you a real Christian? And you say, yes, I am a real Christian. And so what if the next question that this person asks you is, how do you know that you are a real Christian? How do you know? How do you know that you are a real Christian? Actually, as far as John is concerned, our answer to this question will actually show how clearly we understand what it actually means to be a Christian. So, in these verses, he is essentially doing two things. He's saying, now, here are the privileges that we have as Christians. And the hallmark of being a Christian is that you are aware of these privileges that you have and that you are enjoying these privileges. And then, here are some of the marks of being a Christian. And of course, the very language he's using here uh, underscores for us what he wants to say is a Christian is someone who is a child of God. Hence, The name of the series, (laughs) right? And therefore, I'm just going to sum up the entire sermon with this next statement, and then I'll unpack it with a couple of different points. And therefore, Christian is someone who who expresses in his or her life the family characteristics of being a child of God. That's not a point, but it is sort of to give you a synopsis. That a Christian is someone who expresses in his or her life the family characteristics of being a child of God. And he puts it in several different ways, three points this morning. First of all, you'll notice he underlines that a real Christian is someone who has been born of God. A real Christian is someone who has been born of God. And you notice he uses the language several times throughout this, this short uh, segment of our, of our passage this morning. The end of verse 29, the person who practices righteousness, that is, the person who lives in faithfulness to the Heavenly Father is somebody who has been born of God. And then later on in the passage, he reiterates this. In chapter 3, verse 9, he speaks about God's seed abiding in us so that we 
don't go on sinning because we have been born of God. Now, you understand, I, I trust you understand, that John is not speaking about a natural relationship in our lives. He's not speaking here about a natural birth. In a sense, he is expounding to us, explaining to us what he had already said in the beginning of the gospel. That although many did not receive the Lord Jesus, to those who did receive him, he gave them the right to be called children of God, who was, uh, who was uh, not born of the will of man, nor of flesh, nor by natural birth, but by the supernatural birth that comes from heaven. These are not my words. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every real Christian, John is saying, is somebody who has been born again, born from above, into the family of God. And of course, you're probably thinking, if you've spent any time in the Scriptures, you're probably thinking about an interaction that Jesus had with who? Nicodemus. Conversation that he's having with Nicodemus. Uh, what a striking uh, illustration that it is, uh, that is of, of religious. It's, it's possible to be re religious, but yet not uh, to understand the most fund fundamental thing about being a Christian. Remember how Jesus says, Nicodemus, unless you are born from above, born of God, you'll never be able to see the kingdom of God, and you'll never be able to enter the kingdom of God. You know, I remember when I was 17 years old. I'll never forget this summer uh, when I was 17 years old. I had a student pastor who really began to take me under his wing and uh, disciple me. And I was in his house, uh, you know, virtually every day, uh, hanging out with him, you know, playing video games. And we, but he was also really good at taking me to the scriptures, taking me to the scriptures. And really, that was... Honestly, for the first time that somebody began to uh, disciple me. But I will tell you, I made a profession of faith when I was nine years old. And from nine until 17, really, I had no spiritual fruit. Uh, yeah, there were, I would say, legalistic things. I had perfect worship attendance. My parents are actually here. I was in church all the time. Uh, I had the right background. I had the right... Uh, you know, family set up. I had si older siblings that, that knew the Lord. In fact, one was already going into vocational ministry. You know, I had walked the aisle. I had prayed the prayer. I had gotten wet. Okay? And I knew Jesus up here. I knew of Jesus, at least. Right? I even used language. Here's some language. Listen. I believe with all my heart that Jesus is Lord. Guess what? I also believe with all my heart that Joe Biden is the President of the United States. I know some of you don't believe that's actually true. Okay? But I believe it with all my heart. But if I tried to jump the fence at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, I would be shot. Because Biden does not know me. 
I knew Jesus up here. But I wasn't resting in him right here. I wasn't born again. I, I couldn't really see my sin for what it really was. I was resting, honestly, in myself. And that was exactly what was true of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, Jesus, thought of Nicodemus as, honestly, a distinguished theologian in the country. As he said, are you a teacher in Israel? Jesus said, and you don't understand these things because you remember what Nicodemus said. Jesus said, Nicodemus, unless you are born from above and brought by God's spirit into his family, you'll never see or be capable of entering the kingdom of God. And I, I, I love this in John's gospel because John tells us how Nicodemus said, in essence, by Jesus, I don't see that. He said, I don't see it. And he doesn't even see what he's saying. He, he's giving himself entirely away. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again in order to be able to see. And Nicodemus says, I can't see. And this is what the Apostle John is saying to us, that a real Christian is somebody who, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that is, is like a new birth altogether. Our eyes have been opened. Our wills have been set free. And I use that very strategically. And we come to see what Jesus has done for us. And to trust him. And to live for him. This isn't something we can do on our own. This is only something God can do. And of course... As John is emphasizing here, when we become children of God, we become God's uh, seed, God's character, God, and his likeness, uh, likeness to God's nature be begins to appear in our lives. That's why he says the person who has been born of God has a totally re different relationship to sin. Because the real Christian... Or let's just say the person who is a Christian uh, has been given a new nature with new affections, new dispositions, and begins to show the family characteristics. You know, about, I was trying to do the math on this last night as I was thinking about this. 10, 12 years ago, I was still in the army at the time, and uh, I sent my, my parents uh, a picture of me in a Black Hawk helicopter. Uh, and they told me as soon as they saw this picture, they were struck by the family, family resemblance between me and my grandfather, my, my dad's dad. And within, uh, you know, within a day or so, um, I received another picture from them. Uh, and it was a picture side by side, the picture that I sent and the picture that, a picture that uh, my grandfather sent to my grandmother when he was serving during the Korean War. He was in Germany at the time. Uh, he sent this picture along with a letter to my grandmother about the time that my dad was born. So my grandfather missed my dad's birth because he was serving his country. But 
but my parents, after seeing my picture, thought this same love for country. And also, they kind of look alike. They also look just alike, and it's, it's in the family genes. It can't be denied, right? The rice gene, it's, it's strong, okay? It's just coming out in the next generation. And that's what the Christian life is. It's being born of the Spirit of God so that by His grace, the family characteristics begin to appear in our lives. That day dawns when we are remade in the perfect likeness of the Lord Jesus when we see him. So a real Christian is someone who has been born of God. The second thing John implies here is that the real Christian is someone who has tasted the love of God. Indeed, more than tasted it, the real Christian is somebody who's Actually surprised by the love of God. Actually genuinely surprised. I think this is a great indication of God's love for you. Uh, that, that, it, that, it, that it honestly, it takes you totally by surprise. And you notice how he puts it. He says in verse 1, uh, or verse uh, in, in 1, 3, or actually that would be chapter 3, verse 1. Sorry, I had my notes wrong here. And Chapter 3, verse 1, listen to what he says. See what kind of love the Father has given us? Do you see it? He's saying, can you believe the kind of love the Father has shown us? Can you believe it? What John's saying could be paraphrased honestly like this. The love of the Father is out of this world. And it is a love that will never be taken away. It is, uh, it is an amazing love that awes and astonishes uh, us. It, 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 has given for, it, it, it was given for us uh, to enjoy forever and ever. I'm reminded in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 where it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And to someone who's prone to wonder, right, this is good news. And to think, I know there are some, possibly, maybe some who are here, to think that there's nothing surprising about the fact that God loves me. That actually, maybe you're saying to yourself that, that actually I'm one of those people that, of course, he would love. My dear friend, you think that, you need to understand that you are flying right in the face of what the Bible actually teaches. What the Bible teaches is that the very best of us are, by nature, children of wrath. And you'll find that in Ephesians chapter 2. We don't want the things of God before we're born of the Spirit. We don't want them. We reject them. We hate them even. And the scriptures are clear. We're not just indifferent to the things of God. We are actually rebels. And it's the most astonishing thing in the world that God would love us rather than condemn us. 
We want to talk about what's fair. I know we like to talk about what's fair. I got four sons. You give them one thing, give one of them one thing, it's not fair. Right? If you want to know what's fair, we would be separated to God from God forever and ever and ever. That's the only thing that's fair. And you notice what John is emphasizing because he works this thought out in the verse that follows. Here's the question. How do you know that God loves us? How do we know this? How do you know that God loves you? And we're quite honest with ourselves. Life is going pretty well for most of us. Yes, there's hard times, but, but life is going well for us. And some might be some might say, you know, I, have, I haven't had unemployment. You perhaps haven't had sickness. Yes, times, again, may be difficult, you know, you know at times. But, but you want to say that you've been richly blessed. And because of this, that's why you know that God loves you. If that's why you know God loves you, what's your conclusion then? When things don't go well, when you have cancer, you get that phone call from your doctor. When you do lose your job, when things go horribly wrong, when, when, when tragedy comes, when, when all your hopes are dashed, you're almost bound to conclude your logic is blessing and God's love. The only way to think about it then in the, those periods of time is to say God doesn't love me any longer. He must not. No, says John. If you want to see where it is that God has demonstrated his love, look to two things. Verse 5. He appeared to take away our sins. Verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Conquering an enemy that we could not conquer ourselves. Now where did Jesus do both of these things? Where, where did he deal with our sins? And by what means did he destroy and loose us? Set us free from the influence of the devil. Well, the answer is only in the cross of Calvary, isn't it? That's what, uh, that's what his friend, the Apostle Paul, would have told us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the only place you can, be, you can be sure that God loves you. You can't be sure that God loves you by your ability to read providential things. You can't be certain God loves you because things are going well for you. Because uh, that would be a sign that, that people for whom things were not going well obviously weren't loved by God. That's not what the scriptures teach. So it's essential with John that we think clearly about this. That the reason we've come to taste the love of God is because he has unfathomably demonstrated that love by giving his son to the death 
death on a cross to bear our sins, to bear our shame, and to rise again with triumph. To be our Savior, to be our Master, to be our Lord. Otherwise, all you end up tasting is the good things God gives you. And not as the old hymn said, you know, at Calvary. The love that drew salvation's plan. The grace that brought it down to man. The mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. That's where we need to go now. That's where you taste the love of God. When you stand there and think that he died for your sins to be your savior. That you are utterly unworthy. That's when it overwhelms you. What kind of love is this that, that you have chosen to send your son to make someone like me into a child of God? Again, once enemies of his, now beloved sons and daughters, seated at the table with an inheritance that is, if, if, if Christ has an inheritance, it is yours as well as we read in Romans 8. Now, do you understand this? And please let me ask you this question. Do you understand this? This is the only place you can be sure, that, uh, sure of the love of God. And it's the place from which came the springs of life and joy and grace and peace that are so delicious to the taste of a man or a woman or a young person who knows that their greatest need of all is to have a Savior and that He has provided you a Savior. I mean, this is marvelous. This is, this is overwhelming. How could He possibly love me? It's honestly surprising. And yet, He has done just that. This is the response of a true believer. Marvel at awe over the love of God. This person has a different motivation to live a life of holiness. As John gets at and has been getting at over the last several weeks in our messages, right? Can't continue to sin. Now, we recognize, we know, you know, once you become a Christian, doesn't mean you're perfect. But the person who is totally flabbergasted by the love of God has a different motivation to live a life of holiness. They have a different drive to not make a practice of sinning. Not that we, again, no longer sin. We've seen this clearly, right? John chapter 1, verse, you know, uh, in chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1. The sin is obviously still a problem. Becoming a Christian does not mean that you are sinless, but it does mean by God's grace, by His Spirit, we will begin to sin less. Right? As the Scriptures say, as John, John is telling us here, we don't make a practice of sinning. I love the way the ESV puts that, practice of sinning. Makes it clear, right? 
there will be sin. You will battle with ongoing sin. But the Christian that isn't flaunting it, I know what Scripture's teaching. I don't care. I'm going to do it anyways. That's what it means by making a practice of sinning. So the Christian, someone who has been born of God, a Christian is someone who has tasted the love of God and is genuinely surprised by it. And thirdly, the Christian is someone who is destined for the glory of God. And this is just honestly as amazing. He says, see what kind of love the Father has shown us. Verse 2 of chapter 3. We are God's children but what we will be has not yet appeared. You know what he's talking about, right? Future glorification. But what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. My friends, think of those who you loved, who are no longer with us, I think about my papa. Think about them for a moment. If they have trusted and loved the Lord Jesus, they see him face to face, and with all the beauty of grace that we see in their lives, demonstrated in the time they were here, even that has been heightened beyond our imagination. And that's the destiny to which every Christian believer is called. One day, I'll see him face to face, talking about Jesus, and then I will be made like him. No more pain. No more death. No more sin. No more longing of the created things rather than the creator. But of course, all this seems honestly so real. We talk about heaven. It seems so unreal to us. This future glorification. This, this, is, uh, you know, this is the world that seems so this right, right now, this is the world that seems so real to us. The marriages that we have, and this, this is the tangible thing we hold on to. But the promise of the future is almost nothing like what you experience right now. I wonder if, you know the little illustration that C.S. Lewis once used. Um, he says, imagine a woman who has been imprisoned in a dungeon that has only one high window to see the sky, nothing else. And she gives birth to her son and rears him in that dungeon. And she is an artist and, and has a sketch pad and pencils. So in order to help her son understand the world outside and all its wonderful realities, reality, she sketches the world outside for him. And then as he grows up in a conversation... She realizes he's missing the point. He thinks that what's on the sketch pad is the real world. And she says, no, 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 no. 
And before she can stop herself, she blurts out, she says, you don't think that the world out there is all pencil sketches, do you? And pencil lines. And she sees a look of horror on the boy's face. There's no pencil lines? Nothing? And you see what Lewis is saying. He's saying that's how often we seem to view the world to come. It's all kind of unreal and distant. Sounds more like a boring choir practice that goes on and on and on and on and on forever. Right? We have a terrible view of what heaven. But the scriptures tell us it's far more real than this world. That its glories far outweigh the heaviness of suffering of this world. And best of all, in that world, we will see the Lord Jesus face to face. And when we see that face that governs the universe, that we have loved, although we have uh, never yet seen, but when we see that face, the, the sheer power of his countenance upon our countenance will give, uh, will bring to a glorious consummation the transformation of our lives. Yes, even in our personalities. So that fully there is and, and, and display in our lives the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you notice what John says. He says, everyone who thus hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. There is a real desire to grow in holiness. As I think about my life journey from 9 until 17, I can't say there was much desire for growth and holiness. And I think about this. Although modern weddings are shaped different photography and, you know, so this is, a, this is an illustration of, uh, of, of what weddings used to be like. Think of a bride getting ready for her wedding later on in the day and wanting to appear without shame or embarrassment as John says here, bringing light to what he says, not shrinking back in fear. What is her great desire? To what does she give attention? She readies herself so that the moment the doors open and she locks eyes with the man she loves and to whom she is willing to give herself, in that moment she will be at her very best and most beautiful for him. And John is saying, because the first miracle he, he ever saw Jesus do was at a wedding, that's how we live the Christian life. That's why our desire to live holy lives is not a burden to us, but a desire from within our hearts. A heart that has only been given new life, new birth. When I see him, I want to be unashamed, unembarrassed at his coming. 
And so we spend our lives progressively being sanctified. We don't reach it in this life, contrary to what some denominations teach. We cannot obtain perfection in this life. We will struggle with sin until, one, we die, or two, Jesus returns. That's our only, that's it. That's our only hope. That's why our desire to live holy lives is not a burden to us if we are in Christ. If we are a Christian, a desire that grows from outside of us, from within, that only the Spirit of God has done. When I see him, I want to be unashamed, unembarrassed at his coming. So we spend our days, again, praying, Lord, help me. To live the life, help me to live my life seeking to be pure. God, rid me of the remaining sin that is in my life. And I long for that day. When we take communion, do you realize when we quote that passage, when we talk about we take the bread, We take the cup. We remember what Christ has done. But do you remember what it says? For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We're looking forward to a day when we're looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? There's all kinds of marriage imagery in the text. All kinds of marriage imagery. And we're looking forward to that celebration where we will be sitting at the table as beloved sons and daughters, once enemies of God, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, gathered around a table, enjoying one another's company, and being fed by Christ forever and ever and ever. No more pain, no more sickness. Do you realize how good this is? We have something good to long for, but until that day comes, we spend our days waging war against the remaining sin in our life. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And, 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 and really, it's, it's that good. So here is the man's question, again, to me, at Firehouse that day, although his tact was awful. He did ask a very important question. Are you really, after all, a Christian? It's really, I guess, a rhetorical question. I'm not asking you to answer, but I think you should evaluate. Do you, in your life, resemble the family genes? Do you have a desire to grow in holiness. Are you blown away by the love that God has shown us on the cross? Are you genuinely surprised by it? And are you longing for the day that Christ will return? Let's pray.